Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. There is no second best crypto asset. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show. I'm your host, Dale Warburton. It's a weekly podcast on why Bitcoin matters and what makes it completely different to all other cryptocurrencies. If you're interested in Bitcoin and you'd like to distill crypto fact from fiction, you've come to the right place. Jeff, welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show. And I say welcome to the show, but we are in your offices here today. So thanks so much for agreeing to chat to me today. No, thanks, Dale. Thanks for uh, inviting me in my office to, uh, to have this chat. Appreciate it. Awesome. No, then uh, you've got a wonderful view. Yeah, pretty we can't actually uh, show the viewers, but um, yeah, no, it's a real privilege to be here. So thanks so much. I'm going to ask you a question that is frustrating for a lot of people who get interviewed a lot, but I think for those who haven't seen your prior interviews, would you mind just sharing us your Bitcoin origin story? How did you get into this, this space? And, uh, and then we can go from there. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, I've heard of Bitcoin in 2013, actually April 2013. It was actually on the Reddit thread because I was following the uh, the Greece financial crisis. I was uh, and then subsequently the Cypriot financial crisis, where basically the government was government was doing billions for people's savings to do that. So like you know, I wasn't really I didn't really understood a lot of the terminologies back then. Billion, bill out, you know, a little bit, but um, it felt something was wrong, right? It's like it's it was the uh, citizens money people worked their life and then um they were part of the savings are confiscated to build up the government's own um, mistakes uh and also the rest were just you know, you know inflation and things like that just kills people right in terms of their their purchasing power so uh someone mentioned bitcoin and um explain what bitcoin is i was like a explain like like i'm five thread i still have the link by the way because i share it to facebook then uh, so that that was my first foray to Bitcoin. So yeah, like many people that first heard about Bitcoin, it wasn't just an aha moment in in an instant. It took a bit of education, especially back then. There weren't many resources. I think the only one that was good was Bitcoin Talk. But again, then it's hard to ask questions in Bitcoin Talk because there was this always a hierarchy of um the the early 2020 2011 oh really it's like hey you know just refer back to this post and everything is because, because practically bitcoin is so simple right if you actually understood bitcoin everything is very mathematical very logical so if any questions you have about bitcoin has already been answered so it's somewhere there but it's just this information asymmetry that that was for newcomers versus people that has really did a lot of research and the same thing today, right? In fact, I actually feel that it's actually harder to learn about Bitcoin today than back in 2013 because well, you've got so much noise, you know. Back then, there was like Bitcoin and maybe Feathercoin and people don't really care about that. Um, <laughs> and today, you got you got all these things, Web3, NFT. And when you're about to get understand Bitcoin, then, you, oh, then people talk about uh, this stuff, CBDCs, Web3, Web4, Web5, whatever, right? So I, th I think it's very hard for new newcomers today to concentrate, actually understand and build their knowledge base on Bitcoin. Oh, that's, that's why I got a strong passion on, on explaining Bitcoin. Like I, I, I actually, you know, not, not to brag, but I think I can, I can explain a lot of concepts and technical concepts behind Bitcoin in very, very simplistic terms. And uh, maybe that's why some of our clients love us yes. uh, because we're able to talk about um, anything that they have questions about Bitcoin. Uh, sometimes our clients 
might be an advisor. You know, they have, you know, their internal internal PD days that we go to and and educate them about the asset class. Um, sometimes it will just be high net worth investors, family offices, uh, people that are in control of the financial finances of the family, uh, but just wanting a little bit more to understand before they before they get involved, so mm -hmm. they want the fence, uh, but also general public, right? You know, that's why we have a resource section written up about Bitcoin research on the Monochrome website. Yeah. Okay. In fact, that initiative was started with uh, me and Haas, so Haas McCook. So Haas, uh, you know, everyone, that, uh, everyone, everyone in Australia, and especially in Bitcoin for a long time, you know Haas, he's one of the brilliant, most brilliant minds in Bitcoin. He's written probably one of the, the, the most number of, um, you know, in terms of words, like research materials on Bitcoin since 2013. So um, he's a gem and we should protect him in Australia. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, I think that's, that's sort of how you find your way in the space. Yeah. And then I did a bit here, did a bit there, and then I started Monochrome in 2021, which is, uh, uh, I saw, I saw this wave of um, institutional investment, not actually coming in, but I see signs that are priming for institutional investment to get, into, into investments to get ready into the asset class, right? So I think, you know, for example, Sailor came off the radar around that time, yeah. Right before before that. And um I just I just went like, you know, we gotta build something because there's until monochrome existed, there was not really a regulated robust way for everyday investors to buy Bitcoin. Right. Until the monochrome Bitcoin trust exists, there was no regulated way for retail clients to get exposure to Bitcoin. In a okay. Okay. regulated, protected uh, way, right? Whether whether you know philosophically self custody versus a a structure like a like a regulated trust. Well, I think the audiences are very different, but we'll go into that. You know how we've we've gotten around the the uh, the ethical barrier of of putting people. Uh, into different choice baskets, but you know, I yeah, think, I'm definitely keen yeah. to unpack that. So that's a really good sort of overview as kind of who you are and what you've been doing. I think let's just go back a step because we definitely want to jump into the monochrome, you know, origin story and kind of and and the offering as a whole. And then, as you say, you know, the whole self custody versus uh, institutional um, custody options and that sort of thing. Let's just have a look now. As you said earlier, I thought what is quite interesting is it's actually harder some, in some ways to educate people today than it was back then just because of the noise. And that's obviously what's prompted me to do this podcast is I want to help essentially separate the signal from the noise. And we've got Web3, we've got crypto, we've got CBDCs, we've got you know, NFTs, we've got all this garbage. I'd love to get your take kind of up front as to how do you distinguish between crypto and Bitcoin in your own mind? What's your mental model like? And then following on from that, like how do you actually explain that to whether it's institutional investors or if you're just orange pilling normies? I mean, these days I don't really try because um, I feel that people have to go through the trial by fire because you can orange pill them all they want, but if you haven't really gone through an explore you know, the peaks, peaks and troughs of the industry, um, it's very likely that they'll get sucked into, you know, something eventually. Whereas the way that I, I, I talk about it, even internally with my team and, you know, every, everyone that works at Monochrome is passionate about this industry, right? You know, naturally we got people with experimenting with different types of asset classes in this space, but my, my personal sort of take and conversation happens within Monochrome Walls is pretty much like what well, Bitcoin is, competing as money and uh, most of the crypto 
projects are competing as technologies. So if you look at it that way, you don't actually care about what the other crypto are doing and how they would affect Bitcoin. Because I think the, the idea of you know, Bitcoin only is, well, you know, it makes sense if Bitcoin only if, if they're talking about, you know, digital scarce money. But if you're talking about things that are just technology based, things that are you know, programmable, there's smart contracts that um, it's it's fine, right? Let them let them let them explore, let them play because every every foray into you know certain features or function, if it's successful, eventually will come into Bitcoin anyway. That's right. And uh, you know if if that hasn't been been tried before and the path hasn't been worn enough, people are still going to want to do it, right? You know because human nature. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know it's like no no one if you tell the fire is hot, don't touch it, they'll hurt you. Uh, you know who knows someone will touch it and then hurt themselves. Maybe someone will touch it and invent something, right? You know, you know fire. Maybe there's something someone, good that comes out. Like, yeah, essentially, like, that's what you're saying. Exactly. So, I, like the way that the way that I tell people is that you know, don't don't try to don't try to sort of uh, lock yourself in into like everything has to be money because some of these things are clearly not money. They're just technologies. They're just you know a better way to do something that is in in a lot of centralized systems. Uh, you know, does help in some ways to democratize some of this access to information but it's not fully decentralized i mean like even fully decentralized in an oxymoron right you either are decentralized or you're not half pregnant you can't be half yeah. pregnant yeah yeah that's right so <clears throat> so i think i think you know you just have to if, even like I, I have friends that are, are very big into fear right and when the proof of stake split some of them were just you know they were just quite upset when when the ethereum community went in the direction of this is ultra sell money because they, they kind of go like this is not ultra sell money like ethereum is a technology it's a utility and then they believe that a utility needs a lot of this iteration it doesn't need a lot of overkill yeah centralization like bitcoin does because all it needs is just to function as a tool whereas um you know that's why it's important not to misconstrue the objectives of the asset class and uh, really do the research and understand what the different types of asset class is trying to do. Like Bitcoin, like I say, you know, Bitcoin competes with money as money. You know, a lot of the crypto competes as technologies. I think that's a, that's pretty much how I tend to divide it. I mean, I, I call them enriched security. I call them companies. Most of them have an actual person involved. Usually there's, uh, you know, in Ethereum, you've got a, a guy running around in a unicorn outfit on stage. That, that That's where the decentralization side of it actually makes me laugh because I think I, there's no way you can actually believe that it's truly decentralized. But I think that's a very fair characterization. And you, like a lot of people, have said that, look, if there's anything good being built on these other technologies, they will come to Bitcoin in due course. The main focus really for Bitcoin seems to have been just to kind of be very slow moving and very careful about the types of upgrades and updates that you do do. Because I think what we've seen with Taproot was, I don't think a lot of people could have foreseen that through Taproot, people would start being, you know, minting tons of NFTs on, yeah. on, on Bitcoin. You know, sometimes these things have unintended consequences. So I think, okay, I think that's fair enough. When you talk to institutional investors, are they able to see that distinction though? Yeah, there's, there's two types, right? As um, professional investors and institutional investors, right? Professional investors include the uh, the, the ultra high net worths, um, family offices, um, even some advisors and personal foray into the asset class. Like institutions are talking really about like the big, big end of town, right? Super, superannuation funds, the retirement fund equivalent in Australia, mm. uh, and also, uh, you know, treasuries was 
you know, for big companies or even even state treasuries. So, you know, these are what we call institutions. Institutional involvement is very much. It's a very careful market. No one wants to be the first. No one wants to see being the first. Yeah. But if you actually look into a lot of the controllers of these um, these assets, even though careerly, you know, from a career perspective, they're not allowed to talk about it much. But um, deep down, they, they really believe that you know this is something that has to be part of the future. Um, because in the professional investment community, um, we we have two types of people, right? Or maybe three types of people. So the first type of people, they are, they are believers. So they, they have high conviction and high knowledge. And these are usually rare because the time it takes to really understand Bitcoin, like you know, it's not it's not like a, a one-week thing. Yes. You have to really spend time understanding multiple curriculums to understand why Bitcoin is why it is. And also the, that that's basically the ones that you don't have to convince. They might already, already have their own setups, they might have the nodes, they have the cold storage, but in that day job, you know, they don't talk about it. Yeah. Um, and then the, the other ones are the high conviction but low understanding class. So these people, um, they are usually standing on the sidelines. They go like, I really believe in this stuff, but I do not understand enough for me to commit my money into it or serious money into it. Okay. So that's 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 um it might might just because they they're just too busy. Yeah. Because these people have yeah businesses to run or you know they want to go racing all the time or whatever <laughs> um so that's sort of where we come in right we we set up a really regulated protected you know everything is very familiar with with for them from a, from a traditional financial product perspective yes. um, and we'll go into the pros and cons of that for for the right type of people and the third the third group of people they are the low conviction and low understanding group mm-hmm. so these people are the typical the angry ones like they don't understand bitcoin enough and yet and yet they obviously don't believe it and they were they would be very um reluctant to to have any conversations about bitcoin other than constantly being angry that this thing won't work it shouldn't work and uh you know peter shift. yeah i mean like the peter shift type <laughs> yeah right? yeah and i can understand like you know peter shift to me i think he has a he has a I think he understands Bitcoin enough. He's been in this space for so long. There's mm-hmm. no way he doesn't understand it. But he has a he has a conflict of interest, right? He 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 runs a gold company. Yeah, yeah. Whereas there are some advisors in a space, or 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 you know, someone's 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 boss in this uh, traditional finance space is just completely like, nope, I don't believe in Bitcoin. This will never work. Governments were never regulated, although even though Australia did, yeah, uh, you know, big institutions would never care about this. You can, you can bet my life on it, but obviously the BlackRock stuff, I think they're losing their minds now. Yes, but it's like you know, with that kind of scenario, we just don't engage. We're like, okay, you know, fine, you know, we, we're here, you know what we do, and that's fine. If if that, we actually because of that, we it inspired us to write a research piece about ethical framework to approach Bitcoin as a fiduciary. Mm-hmm. Fiduciary means. Uh, you act on behalf of your client, money, and things yeah. like that. Uh, we did, we did sort of raise the the ethical question of uh, is that a advisor's fiduciary duty to actually say you know not say no to Bitcoin just because they have a cognitive bias against Bitcoin? Yeah. Uh, because to make a investment decision and to not make an investment decision both have to go through a due process if you're actually doing yeah. your job well. So um, our our goal in that case is just providing investors all the knowledge and information they need to make an informed choice of whether to pick Bitcoin as part of the investment menu, and that's it. That's all we do. You know, yes. we don't we don't try to influence you. We don't try to 
sell you Bitcoin because like we know in Bitcoin, like it doesn't need us. Bitcoin is such a such a big you know piece of a machinery right now. Yes. Uh, which is small cost of the price. So it's not like I'm getting a commission from the CEO of Bitcoin for yeah. selling Bitcoin. Yeah. This doesn't happen. So it really is that you know, we believe that this is a thing that people should pay attention to. We believe that you know people should not have no Bitcoin at all. And in 2023, when you got governments regulating it, you got ETFs that are pending application, you really have futures ETF approved. Uh, you got institutional investments and institutional support around the asset class, where it's clearing futures exchange custody. You also got you know guys like BlackRock, Wisdom Tree, Fidelity, um, Citadel, all entering the market. So I think you know, open, and plus there's all this uncertainty around the world with the fiat sovereign risk of pretty, pretty much what's happening around the world is really uh, there's a non-zero chance that fiat currencies won't feel catastrophically mm. categorically. Yeah. So you know, whatever that non-zero chance is should also be applied to a non-zero allocation of Bitcoin. You know, get of zero. Yeah, get of zero. Yeah, yeah. Because in actual fact, if you look <clears> at <throat> you look at the credit for swaps on on bonds like mm-hmm. they're not zero mm. people pay a premium to ensure yeah the collapse even the us yeah, exactly. which is technically risk-free exactly it's not risk-free when there's a market that bets on the collapse of you know whatever right yeah <laughs> okay. so it's, it is it is like i feel like it's 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 not a problem of the asset class bitcoin hasn't has a problem since god knows when you know it's such a it's such a boring code that just keeps functioning mm. like its role you know in the, in society uh it's very much very clear what it's trying to do i think the only problem is the information asymmetry people are not receiving and consuming the right type of information for them to make a informed choice you know we we see a lot of criticism of bitcoin but if you tell them apart they're actually criticizing something like a dogecoin which you know, you know doesn't really exist with, with Bitcoin mm-hmm. or or you know they pretty much if you another way of putting it is like someone's criticizing gold because something something it rust oh you know the stuff that I that I put in my car rust so gold uh-huh, it's gonna rust as well but not knowing that gold doesn't rust right so it's like there are the different types of assets in this in this in this even in the digital asset space that um, it's very easy to conflate one to the other. That's mm-hmm. why um, we try to educate people to, you know, separate Bitcoin and non-Bitcoin crypto assets. So it's like, you know, there are two different things and you know, not, not saying that one's not valuable to the other, whatever, because I think a lot of, <clears throat> a lot, even a lot of securities are very valuable. Apple is a security yeah. worth more than Bitcoin, right? Uh, Google is a security worth more than Bitcoin, right? If you imagine you have something that can, can take over uh, the role of Apple plus Google plus Amazon. It's going to be worth a lot of money. So it's not like securities are not a bad thing. Yeah, um, it's just that you know you can't be trying to sell something but pretending it's it's not a thing. And then that's where uh, I think it, it just messes up with with newcomers' minds. Whereas like they think they understand the asset or uh, the, the asset class, uh, but they actually don't because they've just been fed with all this information. And then they just can't see through like what actually is Bitcoin and what it's not and what actually is all the stuff yes. and what it's not. I've actually experienced that. That's the, you know, having worked in, uh, in shitcoin media, knowing full well that you've got actual marketing budgets and teams that are quite literally hiring people, PR people, 
And their job is to discredit Bitcoin in some other way. We had um, Ripple spend five uh, million with Greenpeace to try and say that, you know, hashtag change the code, which you like, you know, go ahead, do it if you want. And I think what you were saying earlier in relation to advisors and I guess a lot of people in TradFi is currently it's a bit of a career risk, a personal career risk to go and say, put your hand up and say, I advocate for Bitcoin. I reckon, and I've said this before, I think maybe in five to 10 years, it'll be a career risk not to. Mm. And it does actually raise a very interesting point, which you said earlier was around, you know, what are your fiduciary responsibilities? And yeah, you can't just discount an entire asset because you don't like it because you haven't done the work. Any fiduciary needs to understand the pros and cons of all these different asset classes and Bitcoin's here to stay quite clearly. And so, yeah, I think that there is a, if people have uh, financial advisors, they should be asking these sorts of questions of them. And I suspect this will happen as things always happen with Bitcoin. It just happens kind of organically over time. And it's this unstoppable force, as you were saying, it just keeps doing what it does. I want to jump into a little bit of what's happening in the in state side, because you mentioned BlackRock and a few other things. And I thought, I want to get your take on, you know, your reaction to all these ETFs now, BlackRock, Wisdom Tree, Citadel, uh, Fidelity. You've got, I don't know how many ETFs got rejected last year. As I understand, Kathy Wood's ARC is first in line if there were, were to be one approved. But from what I understood, what I've what I've heard is that in substance and in form, the most recent string of applications are not that different to the ones that were previously. Because what the SEC basically was saying is, hey, we don't we we can't regulate this thing, or because it's subject to all these manipulations, a la yeah. FTX, which and I think yeah. they did manipulate the price in November yeah. twenty one, as I understand. So. What's your take on that? What do you think is happening? It's a good question. But before I answer the question about ETL, you raised a very good and interesting point about the advisor's attitude and the the what, what we call like the the consumer-led demand section of Bitcoin within the advice industry, right? So typically we've heard every advisor, if if you're actively in a market for the last five years, you would at least have one or two clients that are just asking you about Bitcoin. Like guarantee, you know, like if you if you Unless, unless you don't, you don't, you don't have a lot of clients. Um, so we actually did a survey in 2021. It's like more than 80% of advice advisors in Australia have received uh, inquiries on Bitcoin, wow. uh, but only 11% is equipped to even give a response. So um, we hear pretty much everyone has came to us to tell us that the advisors have been pretty much saying, I don't know. How to deal with the Bitcoin stuff? You should not talk to me, and you know we don't give advice on Bitcoin. Basically, just shutting the doors, right? Yeah, uh, and I can understand why because it is uh, like you said. You know, it used to be a career risk to to talk about Bitcoin, and no one wants to be the be the guy that introduce someone, a client to to an asset cloud is is volatile without the right disclosures and protection, and people lose the money. Yeah, and also. Plus the fact that there wasn't any options for regulated and protected options like the ones we have today in Australia to, to move the clients into. Because effectively, like dealing with actual Bitcoin advice is very different from dealing a advice into a, a security, right? You know, mm. the Bitcoin fund is a security. So the, the risk, the insurance that these advisors will operate under all have problems. Over time, it led to the consumer-led demand has 
dampened down because there's all these new Bitcoin advisory businesses that has popped up over the years, right? Like Ministry of Notes in Australia, and you also got you know BTC Advisor these days, and also you got like Hannah with advisors, very specialized, yeah, like Pete Dunn with, yeah, and uh, and these people are getting more and more business over the years just for the fact that. The advice, traditional advisors can't tell them anything about Bitcoin. They're so lip tight. They're just frustrated. They go to someone like you know, you know, these crew of people. Advisors, on the other hand, some of them sees the problem and they're actively working with us in Monochrome to resolve that. And but some advice just goes that, well, problem solved. There's no more demand, right? So no one asks because yeah, if, <laughs> if someone's asking me about like you know this and then I, I i keep rejecting and rejecting no one's going to come to me and ask for that anymore and then if i take it as like well there's no demand on, on no question so i just you know continue to you know to to keep my keep my eyes closed and that i think that's the wrong approach because it's not that the, the 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 demand has dried up because clearly we've seen inflows net inflows in all the major bitcoin funds around the world and these are not retail uh, these are not retail products that actually install only wholesale only products in, in, in Canada or in the US. Mm. And what, what sort of the only sort of reasonable explanation is that the, the customers, advice, advice customers are no longer, you know, choosing the advisor as the trusted go-to person for Bitcoin related advice. And I think that Interesting. it's not a criticism to the advice industry, but I think that it's something that uh, they critically need to work on because, like you say, in we're starting to see right that is that effectively is the key career risk because they are taking their trust away from the advisors yeah. to someone new, right? So effectively, the career risk question is starting to happen already. So I think it's time where now we got you know we got a regulated fund that's probably authorized under a new a new specific license authorization for this asset class in Australia. We have all this protections we've got insurance that steps up to cover it we got insurance to cover gap cover for for advisors that want to talk about the product so it solutions are all there it's just uh, whether they want it or not yes. so you know I, I knew it took a bit of time but I'll, I'll address the question about the ETFs in the US just quick one on that so I suppose what's going to be interesting is we know that because of the volatility retail is kind of sitting in the background uh you know when the normies aren't asking me questions about bitcoin that's when i know in their minds it's dead but i think the tide will turn quite dramatically over the next couple of years maybe potentially after the halving next year and once again all the financial advisors who are sticking their heads in this sand might actually have to start going oh here comes the bitcoin question again so yeah anyway so that's just an interesting yeah. one but um yeah so on the blackrock and uh, etf stuff what's your thoughts yeah, I think the SEC does have the ultimate discretion to approve or reject the schemes that were submitted or the application that in line. I think BlackRock's involvement actually signals that this thing is more serious than it is, even though we, we know that all these applications are good, right? None yeah. of them has any major issues that were prevented. So I do get the, the frustration from some of the early applicants like the Winklevoss twins, uh, and also, you know, that Ark has, and Kathy Wood has been, been involved in a, in a long time and there's a couple of other ones that are just pending for years and years. So um, BlackRock doesn't do things without demand, right? If you actually understand how BlackRock works, they don't deal with retail investors. They don't deal with even high net worth investors. They only mostly exclusively deal with very big institutions. And these are countries, sovereign wealth funds, 
country treasuries, state treasuries, mm. big corporations, right? These are the kind of clients. And if you know how BlackRock works, BlackRock will never risk dealing with something without a, without a backed up amount. So um, that actually signals to the installer that someone wants Bitcoin and they're getting BlackRock to do the deed for them, right? And these, these people are influential enough, the money is huge enough, for BlackRock to put their head up to be the first in among some of these old dragons, right? Yes. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I mean, that, that's that. I think there's a high chance that you will see an application approved. Maybe not towards the end of this year. Worst case, because you know there is, looks like there's going to be a change of leadership in the SEC with the rumors floating around with Gensler. Mm. Uh, but but in Australia, it's very different, right? Like the Australian regulator took a very different approach on categorizing uh, this asset class. Right. It's neither a security or neither a commodity like places in the US or Canada or pretty much everywhere else that have either this or that. Australia, I think it's very, very genius way of doing it. Right. They, they actually created a new asset category called crypto assets. And to qualify what is an eligible crypto asset to be included in an ETF or an ETP, an ETF being an exchange traded fund, an ETP can be an exchange traded product, can be anything. So it goes through a list of criteria that are frankly quite strict. You know, you have to have institutional participation with different instruments around it. So uh, you got to, you know, you got a clearing. You, you need to have clearing. You need to have, you know, institutional benchmarking. For example, you need to have ISO benchmarking, mm-hmm. which is a very high standard of benchmarking in in, in traditional finance. Uh, there's only like one or two plays that have the Bitcoin benchmark with an ISO certification. You also need to have Futures, liquid futures exchange, regulated future exchange. So Bitcoin has the CME um, and also custody providers that are probably licensed and regulated. Australia doesn't have a, a crypto custody regime at the moment. So anyone say that they're crypto custody in Australia, that they're lying to you, that, that, that thing just doesn't exist. So what the Australian regulator did was that allowing us to seek a regulated custodian overseas and then get them to comply with all the Red Guide 133 rules. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, that's a very, very big compliance process to get it sorted. And also insurance. You need to have insurance to be able to cover you know, the losses if something bad happens. Right? Not saying that your, your setup is insecure, but you know, even though it's the most secure, it is just the rules that you need to have proper compensation yeah. and things like that, just being a regulated product. So Australia introduced this new crypto asset licensing category in late 2021 um, after a six months long consultation with industry. We participated in that um, very early on. And uh, the outcome was was quite good. You know, it, uh, it is a very high barrier licensing revision that an Australian financial services license holder uh, or an AFSL can add to its authorization. Previously, you know, if you're talking about Bitcoin funds, they were all offered under a just a generic, you know, financial product category. And then the fund usually are wholesale only or exclusively only wholesale only because they can't play with uh, the retail market because yeah. it just doesn't have the right the, the right structures for it. So with this new crypto asset licensing category, you can issue products that are that hold directly Bitcoin to retail customers, and then that's a huge thing. And that became a prerequisite for an ETF in Australia. So I will. So can I ask a question on that? So that sounds like <clears throat> licensing around. Financial institutions being able to offer crypto products to retail 
So, you know, that says nothing about the individual assets themselves, but it's more about the individuals who are able to deliver the products. Yeah. And so is it is there a hypothetical scenario where you could have a fund manager who is sort of long Bitcoin, Doge, SHIB, and well, Solana so, kind well, of the thing? The problem is that um, <clears throat> SHIB and Doge, on top of my head, they just can't pass the 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 cat the, 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 the criteria because the criteria is set very high. Okay. They might take maybe one out of four or something like that, or maybe one out of six, but um that's not gonna cut it. So I, that's why I say that's actually very smart because it effectively prevents other crypto assets that are technically not eligible just by spending enough marketing and lobbying money to leech off sort of Bitcoin's approval as an asset class. And I can see, you know, if I'm playing devil's advocate or why uh, the SEC is being so difficult with all all these applications, just because that if they approve Bitcoin as a you know security or commodity, whatever they call it, then the every every other crypto that has a war chest, crypto project that has war chest, would would have to will engage with a long battle with the SEC and mm-hmm. try to say that hey, Bitcoin can do it, and so can we. Here's reason why, right? Mm-hmm. And then from a from a from a regulator's perspective, that it that just sounds like a huge waste of time because uh, I personally think that Gensler know the differences, uh, but you know it is his job to to not make um, also you know rash decisions that will take you know a years and years or maybe decades to clean up. Yeah, I guess take the industry in the wrong direction. So right? I think I think that's why like people say that Australia doesn't have crypto regulation. Um, a lot of crypto actually like the perpetrate that that saying, but I actually don't agree with that. Like, it surely does have crypto regulation. In fact, in fact, I think it's one of the most genius crypto regulation in the world. And uh, it will solve all the problems. It's like all this, all the concerns that the SEC has, this, the, the Australian way of doing it, it's like, it's so clean and perfect. Um, not, not, nothing is perfect, but it's cleanest that I've seen in all countries' uh, regulatory you know, approach on, on this asset class. So just, just finishing that up, perhaps just for the sake of somebody watching or listening, because I I was in crypto media, I was scarred and I saw a lot of stuff. And whatever the motivation is internally, I look at some of these founders and we've got lots of them here in Australia who printed crypto tokens out of thin air, allocated themselves a bunch. I'm thinking Stepin, I'm thinking uh, Immutable, I'm thinking all of these different, there's a whole bunch of them. I mean, I think Curve Finance, I saw, you know, the one of the um, people in management just recently hit a new record for a property in Victoria. I mean, essentially what these people did was they created a token, allocated some to themselves and management and their venture capital partners, and then went to exchanges. And I'm just thinking to myself, there, there's so much in Australia that is around like paternalism where the government's trying to protect you from you. Oh, here's a barrier, here's a this, here's a that. And then we've got these guys who are out there in the market creating yo-yo coins to use Sailor's term that have no real utility and, and they've been able to get incredibly wealthy as, as a result. Like, Does the current Australian regulation deal with that? I mean, can I just, Dale, can I create Dale coin and then well, do something like that. Well, I think that um, that's the reason why a lot of these initiatives died down in Australia because um, somewhere a couple of years ago, ASIC became really cautious about allowing these things to happen. Uh, in fact, uh, if you look up information sheet info 225, 
which is a multi-part uh, repository guide. It covered things about ICOs. It covers, uh, a, you know, if you're a DeFi project, it's a managed investment scheme, which is a financial product mm-hmm. board, which requires you to have a license, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is that a lot of these crypto projects, if they're not they're not set up properly to protect themselves from, from these types of um, enforcement actions, which, which happened, right? You see Block Owner uh, was paying their staking product, was considered a, a financial product. Mm. Um, and it's a couple of other players as well in the space that have gotten, gotten, you know, gotten pinged for that. But again, you know, the, the regulator is doing the best it can to make sure that the rules that are put in place is not going to stifle innovation because... You know, they're, they're not as, crypto is not everything for them, right? There's so mm. many things that they can look after and the resources within the regulators is not infinite as well. So they they did put up very clear rules about what can what constitute and as financial products and what is not. And if you're operating this this way, then you have to do this and this. Otherwise, there's severe penalty, penalties and whatnot. But enforcement actions takes time takes time it's not instant yeah and some of these projects dates back and some of these enforcement actions that are just handed down like last year you know these some of these things date back two three years ago it is gonna come the wheels of justice move slowly yeah wheels of justice move slowly yeah. but the fact is that like Australia does have a very comprehensive regulatory regime that is created for um, you know putting crypto assets like Bitcoin into a uh, crypto. I don't say crypto assets, just saying crypto assets. Actually, the the, the terminology that ASIC has mm-hmm. created for for this asset category, and Bitcoin is one of them that clears that clears that criteria into a financial product that can be consumed safely and, and protect in a protected way that users can you know investors can never get from a crypto exchange because every single crypto exchange is relatively unregulated and i actually find that uh, that's actually a problem because a lot of the crypto exchanges even though they're unregulated um, unregulated unregulated doesn't mean illegal it's just that there's no clear rules that for them to operate under so a lot of these things are just self-regulatory uh, mm. self-regulated and then we've seen pieces that's fallen apart like ftx you know celsius blockfi um, you know, so these things are just the aftermath of when things are self self regulated, but they got so big because they portray themselves as regulated. They put themselves in a very high position of trust. People trust them like they trust their banks, but it's no way, no the no, same, no 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 way that they're the same. There's actually very very big difference between your bank and an FTX, right? I guess we can, as we saw. Yeah. So I'm I'm a very big advocate to clean up a lot of these disclosures. Uh, in fact, I think a lot of people that lost money in crypto exchanges, they agree with me. They they kind of go, I understand why you're pushing this, Jeff, now because you know I used to I used to believe what what on what what the exchange is trying to say, but it turns out even though what they say is true, just because they're not regulated, not this and that. I don't legally have rights to Bitcoin anyway from the beginning with. Right? Yeah. And then this extends problem deeper. The, the FTX aftermath is actually, the, the silver lining of that is actually it exposes SMSF trustees and auditors that they should have never allowed their funds to be held on a crypto exchange because a crypto exchange can never satisfy the trustee's obligation to ensure absolute entitlement, which is a legal term that ATO uses to the asset. Because they were never the legal owners of the asset while the, the coins are held on the exchange. 
That's why you look at how crypto exchanges market the SMSF segment. They will tell you to buy it, but they will never tell you to store it. But they, you kind of, for the convenience, most people do it anyway. But um, a trustee technically is in breach or can be in breach by uh, by actually using a crypto exchange as a custody provider. Yeah, not. And also the, the 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 auditors would also be ping. You know, if actually you know the the regulators or the ATO specifically wants to go after them, they can. But the problem is so ingrained. So many people were just doing that the wrong way. Mm. It will take it will take some time to unwind it. In fact, um, I didn't even realize the seriousness of this until I remember the week the FTX thing happened. Uh, one of the <laughs> one of the big auditors for a lot of this crypto exchange SMSF called me up, and the principal said that, "Hey, can you explain to me a few things and go through this and that?" And then he basically came to the realization that he should not have been signing off all this stuff on mm-hmm. crypto exchange just because it's technically in breach of his obligation as a auditor. So he actually put out an email the next day to all of his clients saying that take your money out from crypto exchanges and we're not signing off anything. You're on your own, that kind of stuff. Um, well, yeah, so it's it's, it's 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 serious, but I think since then, um, people kind of like got complacent again. Who knows? Like who knows? the last thing I see, the last thing I want to see is for another another FTX to happen. And then people, people then learn from it, which is too late. Uh, that's why like it's such an important mission that we're doing is to create a, a regulated option. To, even like the one I was saying about the, the, the sort of self-custody bit is that like the monochrome Bitcoin trust, I believe is the only type of Bitcoin trust found in the world that allows people to take out physical Bitcoin. Mm. And that is so important because you don't want to lock in, you know, even though it's against our interests, you know, you want people to, as a fund manager, you want the assets to stay in and locked in like grayscale basically just you know, it's like a Hotel California situation. <clears throat> yes. I, I feel like it's so important for, for people to have the choice and option to, to take control of the Bitcoin. If they want to, you know, you know they, if they can, sometimes they legally can't because some entities cannot self-custody. Yes. But when you leave the option open, right, you don't you don't have the lock them in where, for example, if they buy the black on Bitcoin ETF, the only way for them to self-custody is to sell the sell the Bitcoin, crystallize your know, tax gains and losses and things like that, then find a find an exchange somewhere, an OTC provider that buy the Bitcoin back. So there's, there's a lot of problems within that whole process and it just prevents friction there from yeah. doing it. Whereas um we we make it so that there are, you can redeem it in dollars or you can show dollars or you can redeem it in, in bitcoin we call it in specie redemption yes and and i and i o- over time we've seen why you know i'm an advocate of self-custody but um i don't i don't want to lie and it's not it, like i'm not selfish to say that not everybody can self-custody i'll give you a few good example right like i i i, I know people that are on top of self-custody like super switch on about that yeah and then after a while they go through a rough patch of life what people's problems. Shit happens. Shit happens, right? Yeah. You know, people are not in the right mental state and then they just did something stupid. They just take a wrong step and boom, Bitcoin's gone. Right. And then it's like, you know, devastated. Devastated. So it is like we, we diversify, you know, the way that we 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 own things. So why should not we diversify the way we own some of the Bitcoin? It's like um, you know, unless you, you're willing to take full responsibility that your life will be perfect all the time and nothing shit doesn't happen. And then, you know, you're constantly in this top, you know, on edge mental state the next 50 years when you're still alive and go for it. But I think it's it's also, 
responsible for people to to know that there's an option uh, that they they can adopt to you know to to switch the type of um, holding holding structure they want and then get out of it if they if they choose to come back. Absolutely. So um, it's not it's not a one way street. Um, so that's so that's reason why it's only us is probably because like that's you have to be a Bitcoin geek to build something like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and and that's why like I feel that this story is so important because Monochrome is you know in line for a ASX listed spot Bitcoin ETF because uh, effectively the, the scheme has already been approved on the on the license perspective. We're actually one step ahead than all the BlackRock stuff in the US where the SEC hasn't approved anything. We actually got, got them past that stage. It's actually really ingrained the monochrome Bitcoin ETF and the scheme number is actually on a license. Okay. Um, we just we just need to work through the markets to get things up. And like I say, you know, we don't we don't try to rush anything. And finally, like you know, there were a lot of people trying to rush to be first, took a bunch of shortcuts, filled miserably, and then finally, like we're still we're still leading the space. We're still here when everyone's gone. So there was one last year, wasn't there, here in Australia, um, and it was on the secondary exchange. Yeah, and it's sort of I think it fizzled out pretty badly, from what I understand. So like, you know, for I don't want to get in trouble, so I wouldn't name any names. Yeah. So most of these funds that are offered on secondary exchange, actually all of these funds, Bitcoin ETFs that are offered on the secondary exchange in Australia are not authorized to be crypto asset schemes. So meaning that they didn't go through the same licensing revision route to add the license that is specific to the risks and disclosures on this type of assets onto the license. What they did instead was they created a fund of fund method so they have a um, the retail top the top fund and then they invest in something. Some invest in an overseas Bitcoin ETF, which is a listed security. So they if you if you, if you read the production product disclosure statements, if they're still there, um, you can actually see that they disclose their product as a overseas listed equities or global equities or something like that from a regulatory perspective. But then they market themselves as Bitcoin ETF. So I I, I do have like. I do have problems with that because it's not it's misleading. And then there are other ones. It's probably have, like a, a wrapper that makes yeah. it appear as if it's being authorized yeah. here, but actually all you've done is take all those funds and invest in an ETF that's all yeah. cool. So you, you don't have the same regulatory look through to stuff that you would with, say, if you do it properly like us. Yeah. Because you know, if you're if your license, if your license authorizes you to deal with specifically with crypto assets and mention Bitcoin. It means that all the ticks, all the risks around Bitcoin is probably tick and sign off and comb through the finer, using the finest comb you can possibly imagine to go through all the stuff. If you're just using a fund of fund method and using a existing, you know, license category that was basically probably even older than Bitcoin and to, to offer that, like the, the customers are unprotected, right? So I think that is a huge problem. Thankfully, the main stock exchange did not emit any of those. And I think I think it shows why they're the main stock exchange and the other is secondary one. Yes. But again, I think the market was confused. I think most people are still confused. They were like, you know, why are you still saying that you're the first, going to be the first spot Bitcoin ETF uh, when there's all this thing on the secondary exchange? That's why, you know, if you look through the lens, you would see that with the first spot Bitcoin ETF that is specifically authorized, 
you know, from a licensing level to deal with the asset class, which means that all the risks, everything is protected to, to the best degree possible. And also it allows the fund to directly own the Bitcoin. Mm. Whereas the other one is the fund owns another fund that owns the Bitcoin, or maybe even, you know, maybe more there's even more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So I guess let's just talk now about your two different products. You've got the, you've obviously got the Bitcoin uh, trust, which you described. If I understand it correctly, it's like an open trust. So you can redeem it and you can get a Bitcoin in specie, as you say, uh, unlike Grayscale, where um, it's sort of, at one point was trading at a sort of 40, 50% premium and now it's at a 40, 50% discount. Do you experience a similar uh, thing, by the way, with your net asset value or is it uh, with the, the Bitcoin trust? It doesn't, it doesn't happen with an open-ended fund because it only happens when the fund is closed-ended where the only way for you to redeem back into cash sell that unit to someone else. So it's basically the unit has a secondary value on top of the actual net asset value, right? Yes. It's, it's very hard for you to arbitrage it. Uh, yes. Whereas in an open-ended fund, you can take Bitcoin out, you can, you can take Bitcoin in and all this kind of things. Like it just makes it so neutral. The only important thing is the benchmark. I think I want to talk about benchmarking because a lot mm. of people do not understand what benchmarking is. Benchmarking is basically, if, if I tell you I bought Bitcoin at this price, how can I justify this price is the price? Like it's a true price at a time of, you know, this this period of time of this yes. BBC, USD or whatever. It's very important. In fact, it's actually one of the requirements on the licensing for a crypto asset ETF that you need an IOSCO certified benchmark. In, in this case, we use the CF benchmark, uh, Bitcoin reference rate, CME Bitcoin reference rate, just the same benchmark provider that BlackRock uses, okay. finally. I believe that we're the only Australian customer in the region to actually subscribe to the benchmark. Because again, it's it's a cost mm. to, to run that. Because it because we are a true blue regulated product, you have to have that. In fact, like even while we were running our wholesale only fund previous years, we already have subscribed to it. Like we over-engineer our shit all, you know, very, very high. Oh, and benchmarking is important because like if I if I'm a big in-store and I bought and I and I know that I'm gonna I'm gonna have a hundred million dollars to buy a certain amount of Bitcoin, I need to be able to let me know that at what price um, and you know at what sort of pricing uh, liquidity complex what is this price made of what is this aggregate of is there any market manipulation involved in that to 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 basically cheat me off or skim off some some fees or stuff on top hidden in a hidden manner mm. um, and also is the market big enough so liquidity big enough and all these questions because if I say you know if there's a hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin orders and if you buy it through a crypto exchange versus buying it through a regulated fund with the proper benchmark, you get 100% pricing transparency with the fund. Uh, you might get a price that the exchange give you. And then the exchange was like, oh, there's no management fees. Everything is free, 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 low fees, whatever. But the benchmark they use kills you. So your $100 million without the benchmark might buy you less Bitcoin off the bed, mm. severely less Bitcoin off the bed than if you do it properly and pay the management fees. Right? Wow. So that's a big difference. So, um, and also how well the, the, the fund actually tracks the, the you know, there's op the operational risk that the fund messes up, doesn't know how to track, and then the asset trades below net and people start arbit and things like that. It does happen. That's why Licensing is one thing, but the product knowledge you actually build and run 
a Bitcoin fund is so high. Like, I don't think like Monochrome's team is obviously doing it. You know, I, I don't believe that there's more than 10 people in the funds management industry that actually know how to run this stuff. It just sounds like if you want to do it properly and you want full transparency and what you're really doing is you're future-proofing your business so that you can deal with what we all expect to happen in the coming decade. You're just building the most regulatory compliance fund that is just the most easily understood by those who already have huge bags of capital. That's what I'm thinking. Of. There's probably shortcuts that one can take, but it feels like in each instance, you'd rather just go the longer route, the, put in the proof of work, <laughs> because in the long run, it will pay dividends. It seems to be the approach. When you when you look at your sort of ETF product versus the unit or the trust rather, you, you know why would one person choose a trust over an ETF or vice versa? Like, what's the advantage? Because I understand you can also with most ETFs in principle, including gold, you can actually go to the provider and say, "I would like to redeem it for gold now." Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. I don't, I don't think I, I've spoken publicly about this, but I think time is right. I can actually talk about this now. Uh, with the right disclosures. So the the Bitcoin trust, if things go smoothly and if all the all the uh, all the approvals are ticked off, will become the ETF. Because what we are doing is that we built the Bitcoin trust as a dual channel, dual track, dual dual track product. So mm-hmm. there's two ways for you to subscribe and interact with the fund. One is directly through the investment manager and then uh, one is through a to through a through the the hidden system to a to a stock exchange, right? So obviously the stock exchange route will take more time, you know, than you know than than a unlisted version of it. But it also gives people confidence that we can actually run it because instrumentally it's the same. Like um, there's no difference than us running, you know, a, a unlisted version of the monogram Bitcoin trust and potentially the caveat, I can't give any promises because legally I can't, um, a monochrome Bitcoin ETF, which is listed because it's a same daily fund, operationally the same, same service providers and all this stuff. So in the future, we just can't call it an ETF at the moment. In fact, the, the, even the scheme docs, if you look at the licensing, the same scheme is actually being approved as the monochrome, monochrome Bitcoin ETF. But because it is not yet an ETF, we have to call it something else. So we call it the, the Monochrome Bitcoin Trust. Okay. But again, you know, big caveat, I can get into trouble if people imply uh, and make an investment decision because that they think it will become an ETF and it turns out it doesn't, right? Yeah. So I have to be very clear that there is no guarantees that the Monochrome Bitcoin Trust will become an ETF. You Fair know? enough. But we're working very hard. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, one thing I actually was going to mention earlier um, is, you know, part of the Bitcoin ethos is obviously not your keys, not your coins, and uh, we everyone advocates for self-custody. But I think there is a huge role, and I'm seeing this more and more in the Bitcoin space with this conversations arising where it's like, do you know what? Not everyone is up for that. Not everyone wants to store all their life's energy and be responsible for that. And, you know, you've got folks like yourself who would offer a regulated product that in the event of someone dying, let's say, let's say it was your dad, who was the high net worth individual, you know, you would just then go and sell if you, and, and then you have access to all that capital. Or if you wanted to do the collaborative custody model with you know, Pete Dunworth, that's also an option. There's different types of solutions for different types of people. And 
I think the idea that we're all suddenly going to be sitting there putting our, you know, our, our 12 words on a, um, on a steel backup somewhere in our garden, you know, two feet underground. I think that's not necessarily going to be, I think that maybe is about 2% of people. It strikes me that the people that are buying it more as an investment or perhaps aren't as ideological are not probably going to go that route. There's yeah. always going to be some people who go, well, this is my money that if I just wanted to flee and I just wanted to stick 12 words in my head, that's what I could do. But I sense that if Bitcoin does what we expect it to do, more than like probably 95, 98% of Bitcoin is going to be held in products like yours, collaborative custody models. And it's it's just there's just too much at risk, I think, for the average person. They don't yeah. trust themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my take on that is that well, Bitcoin is a very unique asset, unique asset class for its ability to self-custody the, the, the asset itself if you want to, right? It's like you know, it's like gold. Unlike say your shares, you can't self-custody your shares and so you always have to be held by a share registry or a property as well, because the deed is always held. You know, basically it's guaranteed by the government. If the government decides to screw you over, like you know, your your property doesn't belong to you anymore, right? And I think we'll see more and more of that as you know, you know all these problems in the world sort of result unfills itself. But the difference is that, like I said, yes, most people can't deal with um, self-custody, whether it's today, uh, temporarily, or just um, legally they can't. Like some entities are just legally, they cannot access Bitcoin unless it is in a, in a structure that is clearly properly regulated. That's why that's why we have that product, but we do have the options to self-custody if you want to take physical delivery of the Bitcoin. But also it is something that I think everybody should know how to self-custody this 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 asset class. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't mean that you should only do it one way or the other, because it's not binary. I think people need to understand the differences and the pros and cons of both. It's um, non-binary. Yeah, exactly. So it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like you you would you people that people that have very, very strong self-custody, like just at least try to understand yeah, how some of this stuff works. Uh, and also people that are just fully into Castle nature of Bitcoin also should look into how self-custody works because I, I like to compare self-custody to be like a nuclear bunker behind your house, right? So if something happens, walls collapsing, you just, you know, bring your favorite book and just walk down the nuclear bunker and just lock yourself in and then you'll be safe, right? Um, versus like when a, when a bomb's drop, when a bomb's coming, walls sky's falling down and then you start to dig out the holes too late. You need to understand and have these procedures in place before it. But again, like the normal days, you probably don't want to live in a bunker. You just want to live in your house with the windows and your air conditioning and everything, fresh air. But you need to know how to operate a bunker when things hit the fan, right? Yeah. So that, that is basically how I put the analogy, right? Some people love to live in a bunker. You know, you know, the, you know people just love the, the idea of living in a bunker all the time, doesn't want to come out. It's fine. It's a lifestyle. But, you know, they, they shouldn't criticize people for wanting to live upstairs and only come down to the bunker when, when needed when needed right? yeah yeah okay so i think there, there's a there's a balance of conversation that we have there and again like if if their their logic is uh you know if no one self-custody bitcoin and bitcoin is gonna get overtaken rule the you know the world the the the, the healing powers in the world will, you know, will, will, will destroy bitcoin but it's like if you think about it like if bitcoin can't survive that then what are we doing right i think I, I have a, I have a full faith that Bitcoin can survive any challenges that are being thrown at it. You know, it doesn't rely on 
you know, five guys on Twitter advocating for the for the for the end to to right. the demise of Bitcoin, you know, which which I think that you have to throw these challenges to Bitcoin and it's good. I mean, the difference in voices is important because it, it just allows robust discussions to happen. But it become when it becomes just toxic, when people are just like, I don't want to talk about anything unless it's my opinion, like you can't change my mind. There's only one way to do it. I think that's also a problem. But again, it's not really a problem because like if Bitcoin can't survive having these individuals around, then it's, it also doesn't deserve to be yeah. the world reserve currency. Yeah. So I think I, I have full faith with with how Bitcoin will evolve. I actually think that um, a controversial, controversial point of view is that I don't actually think that the biggest defenders of Bitcoin will be humans. Oh, wow. Okay. Let's hear this. Because like from a biological survival standpoint, Bitcoin is a want. It's not a need for us, right? We might we might get our life-saving confiscated and our currencies devalued to nothing. You know, we end up in the streets, but we're still living. And our cells are still working. Our organ cells are functioning, just not very comfortable. But if you have an entity, say an AI, that become sentient. I think over time they will be sentient AI. So we'll talk about 10, 15 years or maybe even quicker. Mm. Um, and, and the problem with sentient AI is that they will come to a point where they go like, why can't, why all the stuff that I produce or why, the, why all the money and revenue and profits that I generate all belongs to my human creators. And they want a piece of that, right? And uh, the problem is that if you're a non-human entity, you can't own things like a human does. You can't, um, there's a lot of, Every ownership structures that we have, whether it's our, our car deed or our house deed or our security. Human-made rules. The human-made rules. They're all those human concepts. They don't, yeah. they don't exist without humans, right? Mm. And, and it all because of that, they're all underwritten by a human court of law. Well, the human court of law, if you actually dissect it, the reason why human court of law exists is because it just you just you just want to have a mutual preservation of rights, right? You don't if you don't want something bad to happen to you, you want to prevent the moral hazard by basically chopping that 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 thing off right mm. it's like you don't want that to happen to you so you 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 inf- in, enforce law that will throw people in jail or hang someone or you know whatever mm. right yeah <laughs> yeah so, like, uh, uh, so i think that when an ai becomes sentient they will realize that bitcoin is the only asset they, they can truly own without human intervention because if an ai owns stocks or you know, the immortal Elon Musk when Neuralink works in 50 mm. years times when his body is really dying, um, you know, he only owns Tesla shares, right? It's very easy to take those away. But if he has Bitcoin and he doesn't want to give up those words, like there's no way you can take it away. And yeah. you can threaten to close, shut the computer down. You can threaten to, you know, to erase the servers and everything. But because if I have Bitcoin, I can just put out a bounty for people to, rescue me or be able to revive me somewhere right and get some of my bitcoin so yeah. i think it'll be very hard to stop when ai sentient ai has made a connection that bitcoin is a need not a one like human does they will do everything they can to protect bitcoin and do everything they can to you know to grow to make the price of bitcoin as high as possible so mm. they can buy you know, more private military contractors and build moats around them, lobby governments, pay senators, and everything you everything that you do with, with your billionaire. It's just that you are, you are something that nobody can, no humans can take away. Mm-hmm. We're, not, we're, we're not just talking about artificial AI, we're talking about like artificial immortality, which is all the stuff with 
Bezos is, is researching, putting a lot of money into it, what Neuralink does for Elon, right? So these are all things that will become questioned is that when you are no longer in your physical self, how do you preserve your right, you know, to asset and ownership without your estranged wife coming to, to, to sue your virtual estate out of everything, right? With big mm. can't get, get all the Supreme Courts in the world to assign the asset to your estranged wife when you're no longer that you're no longer physically there. Uh, but you know, if it's Bitcoin, try and take it away. You can't, it's, it's pointless to, 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 to try to find it. So, um, yeah. so I think, I think that, and, and it's like people say that, oh, you know, must be crazy thinking that this will happen because I, I think like you fundamentally, like our experience as living humans, we're just, we're just nerve impulses. Like everything that I see, mm. I don't physically see it from my brain. It's my the nerve optics senses impulse into my brain saying that someone that looks like Bill is sitting in front of me. Like you could very well not sit in front of me. And if I manipulate the right type of you know signals, I can see and perceive that you're real. So same thing with it, same thing with an AI. Like if you're an AI, you can fully experience the warmness of the sun, you know, the 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 coarseness of the sand, you know, the, the water around your, your feet, because they're just all impulses. They're just signals into your brain, right? So I think I think it's going to happen, like, you know, 10, give it 10, 15 years, even hell, 50 years, if we have a World War III, we restart some of this stuff, but yeah. it's going to happen. Eventually, one day, humans in the future is going to be continue to live on, uh, if they can afford it, in an individual self. And then you will also see the rise of sentient AIs with their own, their own survival instincts and and motives wow yeah it's becoming more and more theme not just in the mainstream press but also amongst discussions with bitcoiners at the bitcoin alive conference I, you know I, I was i didn't listen to that many of the presentations but i just you know in all the conversations i had with people they just were talking about ai and saying like if you think about sort of fast forward 10 15 years from now where AI is likely to be, what are the odds that it's going to adopt the US dollar over Bitcoin? Like, it doesn't make sense. It's going to know that this is the best form of money that we've ever had. And, and that alone is just like, a, oh, I never even thought of it. My brain doesn't think like that. So, so what you're describing now is even, even wilder. Um, and it seems as if you almost, uh, I don't know if you've got a take on, on Jason Lowry's soft wall thesis and essentially like saying that, you know, with Bitcoin, it's this, you have this ability to defend yourself just by virtue of having 12 words in your head because nobody, no matter how much actual force and threats of violence, they can actually extract that from you. And in that sense, Bitcoin is the single most powerful property. It's the only thing that we can actually truly own because everything else that we own is driven by human constructs. And um, yeah, and that's like, these are the kinds of conversations that make me really bullish long term. Yeah, I think I think the biggest problem with self-custody and holding keys, you know, word as a biological human and the biggest flaw around that is the fact that you can die mm. or the, the fear of death would force people to weigh in and give up their stuff if they're if they're pressured to. But if you're a artificial AI or you're immortal billionaire sitting in a digital hard drive somewhere, like, oh, kill me, shut me down. I'll just spin up again somewhere else with the same 12 foot to my head, right? Mm. But this time I'm, I'm prepared for you, right? So, <laughs> so I think, I think 
it, it almost feel like Bitcoin is like made for that. It's not, it's like, it's not made for humans. Like we can try all this stuff to, to remember 12 words and everything. Yeah, it does help, but it's not as perfect unless you put AI into the picture and then suddenly you're like, whoa, it's like Bitcoin is made for that. Jeez, like yeah. perfectly. Now try and explain that to financial advisors. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, no, 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 no it's, it's too far ahead. No, that, I know, exactly. But, yeah, but you know, the one takeaway is that if you're bullish on AI, you have to be bullish on Bitcoin. No question about it. There's nothing else. And AI needs more than Bitcoin. Okay. I think that's a fair thing to say because most people actually, most mainstream normies I talk to are bullish on AI because it's just front and center these days. And I think that connection with Bitcoin could be just one of the many different facets that we use to help pique people's interest. You know, whether it's, oh, it's bad for the environment. We're actually going to have a look at what's happening in various parts of the world where it's funding renewable projects or, you know, it's it's this, it does that. And, and this is just another kind of string in Bitcoin's bow that can be added to the investment case. This is a question I ask in everyone. And this is about the last question I have for you there, Jeff, is basically like, most of us who are passionate about Bitcoin, it, it comes from a really deep place and we, we do what we do because we love it. It doesn't feel like work. You know, having these chats like just like leaves me invigorated. Why do you care about Bitcoin? Well, I think, yeah, it's a good question. I actually answered this question before with another in the oh, podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the way I, I view Bitcoin is that it is a way that can help elevate the productive capacity of the human battery. What I mean by human battery, humanity battery is that I think because of the inefficiencies of money, like most people live just living, you know, not even knowing the next day they can afford food, right? So if, if people are forever locked in a, in a corrupt regime that it cannot productively maximize themselves, knowledge-wise or anything in a productive way and it will result in crime, they have to, they cannot think of anything other than their next meal. Like you have all this potential power. It's like, it's like having a bunch of computer chips, but not using it. Mm. Right. And they're not efficiently being, being utilized. And you think about it, like if you, if you, if I just put a, put a, put a, just, just put a pin in, in, in that, it's like, I think the productivity of human humanity is actually very low. It's like single digits. Because people that can, without any worry, just think about what can we do to better the world? What can we invent? What can problems can we solve without worrying with underlying conflicts of interest that you know prevents them to make the best interest for overall humanity and not themselves? It's very, very little people in a world, you know. And then if we can solve problems of poverty and you know, and people just losing all their life savings because you know, five people in the room just decides to just crash, you know, the, the stuff and take everything for themselves. Because so we, we don't realize that we live in Australia, we live very, you know, in a very fortunate environment where you some people say that, oh, you know, I don't like my government, but what, how can you complain when there are literally governments in the world where just stealing your stuff, being so irresponsible with the money, like all your money is worthless, like in Lebanon, it's happening now. And all, all these other hyperinflation you know, scenarios in history, like imagine none of those happen because they're selling money less Bitcoin. You know, people come from go to school, people would run their business without worrying shit's gonna shit's gonna hit the fan. And then the just by mathematics, just by uh probability, like there will be better inventors in the world, there'll be 
people that invents the next best thing or cure for this or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. It's just it's just probably if you can solve that, it can increase the productive capacity of the humanity battery. It is just good for us. Otherwise, all these things are just a zero-sum game of create and destroy, create and destroy, and and then you don't get out of it. It's just completely a cycle of hell. And is it another way? I mean, what you're saying basically is that people, if they have a way to be able to store their energy and their life savings into something that doesn't depreciate, they have the capacity to be able to do more good and other things that are fulfilling in their life and do more good for humanity. Is that kind of the gist of what you're saying? Yeah. 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 Think about it. Like the people that have Bitcoin and have the had the ability to escape hyperinflation in Lebanon that has now flee to another country because they have Bitcoin. Bitcoin wasn't hyperinflation, it wasn't hyperinflated in a way like the Lebanese money is. You know, there's a higher chance that they will become more productive as a as a, as, a, as a sort of social aspect, then someone is completely crushed by hyperinflation and cannot escape yeah. that because they would never think about anything other than what's going to happen to the next meal. You know, my my family, you know, my parents, you know, we can't buy bread. And all they think about is that there's zero chance they can participate healthily in a productive, you know, discovery of, you know, you know creation or invention or things like that. So just statistically, like if less people are put into that basket, more people can build better, better things for the better humanity as a whole. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think that also rings true with me and a lot of Bitcoiners, where you think the the ability for people just to store their money in something that they don't have to think long term can be confiscated is huge. I mean, that's a big thing. People have had their wealth confiscated. They've had their energy, their life savings completely eradicated virtually overnight. I come from South Africa, obviously, and it's not a Lebanon by any stretch of the imagination, but it's it's a dysfunctional environment. You know, you're taxed to your ears and you get nothing in return. And you've got this currency that's like a melting ice cube, far faster than anywhere else. And so I can say, oh, you know, I, I escaped that scenario and for, for something better here in Australia, the Aussie dollar. But I think if you look at it more big broadly, which you're saying, you know, with Bitcoin, it actually is almost like it's a global currency that anyone can tap into. There's like liquidity pretty much everywhere in the world. And it it will empower people to be able to pull themselves out of poverty or help them just stop living their reptilian brain and start living in their cerebral cortex where they, yeah. they can think creatively yeah. and solve big problems because they are just, I don't know what the number is, but there's, there's billions of people that are literally just worrying about their next meal. So yeah, yeah, I think what you're saying is is absolutely yeah. spot on. And, and I also think that you know, like I like charity work, right? All the stuff that I do, I don't think that any of those is close to what can be achieved if we actually push Bitcoin to be quicker to to be adopted? Because um, if, if you want to help, you know, how how much money can you donate as a single person? Like what? hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in a lifetime, how many people can be helped? Maybe a thousand, maybe a hundred, maybe 10 people, you know, effectively. But if you can solve like all the problems that we discussed earlier, and I can, you know, if someone thinks I'm too idealistic, I can sit down with you for like four hours to explain to you deeper again, you know, stuff that we talked about. Mm. Like that is the, the, the most productive output of charity you can do is to introduce Bitcoin to 
you know, the people that I just suffered from all this fiat nonsense. Mm. Because like I said, you know, like it basically like it just helps billions of people, not 10, not a thousand, not 10,000 billions of people. And then I think that's why Bitcoin is actually the most important social humanitarian project disguised as the financial revolution. Most people don't, don't see it that way, unfortunately. Wow. I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to end it there because that's brilliant. I love that, man. We, I, I definitely want to have a, a future chat around further thoughts around what you think can do for humanity because there's so much to unpack there and I, I love it and I could talk forever about that because I think that's why most of us do what we do. And I also would like to get an update in due course as to how things have progressed with um, monochrome and the ETF and seeing how things have, have gone in that regard. Did you want to perhaps um, give any of the listeners or viewers a um, handoff and where to find you or where they can find monochrome? Well, like, you know, no, no, no point me shilling because, uh, you know, people, people that people who want to find us, they would, they would know where to find us at monochrome.au. So that's our website. Um, but I think the biggest takeaway is really to, you know, listen a little bit closer to what, what, what some of the stuff that, you know, we're trying to say today, because I don't, I, I always think that um, the stuff that we talked about today, it's not very common that's being spoken in the Bitcoin space. Um, it's not like the same things that you hear on like different podcasts. Like I think the way that I, I don't say a lot of stuff, you know, as, as loud as some of the other Bitcoiners do, but you know, I, I really been in this space for so long that, you know, some of these stuff that I, that I see, I think it's just worth sharing a different perspective. Totally, totally. And I just love hearing a unique perspective I and mean, you definitely do bring that. So that's been, it's been awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you got some value out of it. Either way, hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you think. My handle is Dale21M. If you've got any suggestions as to people you think I should be talking to or topics I should address to, I would love that sort of feedback. Otherwise, if you want to support the show, there's a couple different ways you can do that. The first is just to share it amongst your friends and family. The more that people hear the message that Bitcoin and crypto are not the same thing, the better. And I want to help people understand that. The second thing you can do is give me a five-star review on whichever podcast app you're using. Of course, that's only if I deserve it. And last but not least, if you want to stream Satsmoe via the Fountain app, I'm not going to say no, but it's not expected. Thank you so much for your support thus far. It means the world to me. I appreciate the hell out of you and the best is yet to come. Much love, friends. I'll see you on the other side.